So, what is a beginning? It's a simple word, but difficult to define, in part because it admits of many senses. Beginning is a relative term. It always points to something beyond itself. Thus, to speak of a beginning necessarily includes a reference to something or things that follow from it. Looking back to a beginning already involves some recognition of what has come after. And there are as many beginnings as there are stories we tell about ourselves, our lives, our origins, and ultimately of the origin of all things, of the universe itself. Obviously, one thinks here of the opening words of the Bible in the beginning. When Aristotle writes about beginnings, he reminds us that a small mistake in the beginning often expands exponentially to produce error after error. This admonition has a special relevance in discussions with respect to cosmological, philosophical, and theological claims about the beginning of the universe and especially the relationship between claims in cosmology and traditional understandings of the doctrine of creation. An initial error about different senses of what it means to begin is the beginning of all sorts of errors about the relationship between the doctrine of creation and the discoveries of contemporary science. Such errors often lead to a further error, to think that advances in cosmology have eliminated the need for a creator. This conclusion has its beginning in a fundamental error about the various beginnings that the natural sciences, philosophy, and theology address. Well, what can cosmologists tell us about the creation of the universe? An answer to this question requires us to be clear about the explanatory domains of the natural sciences, philosophy, and theology. In their book, The Grand Design, Stephen Hawking and Leonard Mlodinow make the point that just as the universe has no edge, so there is no boundary, no beginning to time. Therefore, to ask what happened before the beginning or even at the beginning would be meaningless. Quotation number one from Hawking and Mladenau. In the early universe, when the universe was small enough to be governed by both general relativity and quantum theory, there were effectively four dimensions of space and none of time. That means that when we speak of the beginning of the universe, we are skirting the subtle issue that as we look backward toward the very early universe, time as we know it does not exist. We must accept that our usual ideas of space and time do not apply to the very early universe. That is beyond our experience, but not beyond our imagination. Commenting on this claim when interviewed on television several years ago, Hawking said that nothing caused the Big Bang because there was no time 
at such a putative beginning. For Hawking, the relationship between cause and effect is essentially a temporal one. A cause always precedes temporally its effect. But his cosmology allows no time in which a creator would exist prior to what he creates. No time, hence no causal nexus, therefore no creator. There are fundamental confusions in this analysis in which God's causality, the creator, for example, God's causality is considered as the same kind of causality that creatures exercise and that the relationship between cause and effect is necessarily a temporal relationship. Citing a version of contemporary string theory, Hawking and Wadnow tell us that the creation, in their word, uh, the creation of a great many universes out of nothing does not require the intervention of some supernatural being or God. Rather, these multiple universes, they say, quote, arise naturally from physical law. The principal argument they offer here is that once we recognize that our universe is but one of an almost infinite number of universes, then we do not need a special explanation. We do not need a grand designer for the very precise initial conditions that account for life and our existence. Recent theories concerning what happened before the Big Bang as well as those that speak of an endless series of Big Bangs or some version of a multiverse hypothesis are often attractive because they too deny a fundamental beginning to the universe and thus appear to make a creator irrelevant. There is a desire in some cosmological circles to get rid of the troubling singularity of the Big Bang itself, a singularity that seems to indicate a beginning to the universe. Such theories claim that, quote, the Big Bang is not the beginning of space and time, but rather an event that is in principle fully describable using physical laws. They, these theories claim that the Big Bang does not happen only once. Instead, the universe undergoes cycles of evolution. Number two, quotation here, Roger Penrose, the Oxford mathematician and physicist who just won the 2020 Nobel Prize, is a proponent of what he calls conformal cyclic cosmology, according to which, and this is the quotation from Penrose, the universe consists of a perhaps infinite succession of eons where each eon originates with its own Big Bang and has an unending, exponentially expanding future consistent with a positive cosmological concept, concept, constant. The remote future of each eon matches conformally the Big Bang of the next one. And this is a uh, kind of artist rendition of conformal cyclic cosmology. Huh? Uh, the bottom of each uh, cone there on the left is a Big Bang, and on the right are 
three separate eons, each associated with one expanding universe uh, connected to uh, a Big Bang. Some cosmologists have used insights from quantum mechanics to offer accounts of the Big Bang itself. They speak of the Big Bang in terms of quantum tunneling from nothing, analogous to the way in which very small particles seem to emerge spontaneously from vacuums in laboratory experiments. Thus they think that to explain the Big Bang in this way, as the fluctuation of a primal vacuum, to explain the Big Bang in this way eliminates the need to have a creator and leads to the conclusion that physics itself is competent to explain the very beginning of the universe. Alexander Vilenkin of Tufts University argues that although the universe has a beginning, modern physics can describe the emergence of the universe as a physical process that does not require a cause. Number three on the screen from Vilenkin. What causes the universe to pop out of nothing? No cause is needed. If you have a radioactive atom, it will decay. And quantum mechanics gives the decay probability in a given interval of time, say a minute. There is no reason why the atom decayed at this particular moment and not another. The process is completely random. No cause, no cause is needed for the quantum creation of the universe. So here we have a recognition on Blanken's uh, part. I guess he'll admit a beginning, but there is no cause needed for that beginning. And he compares uh, that quantum creation of the universe to what quantum mechanics tell us about processes at the micro level. Well, there are other thinkers, however, who have embraced traditional Big Bang cosmology, which seems to affirm an absolute beginning to the universe as providing scientific justification for, if not actual confirmation of, the Genesis account of creation. Even Pope Pius XII once remarked in the early 1950s that Big Bang cosmology offered support for what the opening of Genesis revealed. The argument here is that an initial singularity, the Big Bang, outside the categories of space and time, points to a supernatural cause of the beginning of the universe. William Lane Craig, one of the better known proponents of this position, connecting the Big Bang with, with a notion of creation, he outlines his argument in a simple syllogism. One, and this is number four on your screen. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. Three, therefore, the universe has a cause. It is created. Craig's argument appears to have an immediate appeal. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. That's the use of Big Bang cosmology. Uh, and then the conclusion, therefore, the universe has a cause. In addition to referring to contemporary Big Bang cosmology to support 
number two, that the universe is temporally finite, Craig also invokes philosophical arguments about the impossibility of past times being infinite, an impossibility of an infinite of an infinite past, an impossibility that leads ineluctably to the conclusion that the universe has a beginning. So we've got a double argument here. We have an argument using cosmology. The universe began to exist. Big Bang cosmology shows us that. And then there's a philosophical argument about the impossibility of an actual infinity. And if the universe didn't have a beginning, there would be an actual infinity of past events and so forth, which is impossible to have an actual infinity. Since there can be no actual infinity of past time, it must have a beginning. So we have a double scientific philosophical argument here. The relationship between the temporal finitude of the universe and the conclusion that it is created can be found in the work of the Jesuit theologian and cosmologist Robert Spitzer. In his book, New Proofs for the Existence of God, Contributions of Contemporary Physics and Philosophy, Spitzer claims that modern physics shows us that the past time of the universe is finite. And since the universe has a finite past, it must have begun to be. And if the universe began to be, there must be a cause for this beginning. It must have been created. Interestingly here, Spitzer accepts Alexander Vilenkin's argument that the universe has a beginning. But with Craig, Spitzer rejects Vilenkin's denial that there must be a cause for this beginning. So Vilenkin accepts beginning, an absolute beginning, but denies that there needs to be a cause. Spitzer and Craig accept, accept an absolute beginning, but then use that to argue that since there must be a cause, there must be a creator. As we can see, there is a debate as to whether or not cosmology discloses a beginning to the universe, as well as a more explicitly philosophical debate about whether a beginning to the universe requires a cause. Physicist Sean Carroll, in his book, The Big Picture, on the origins of life, meaning, and the universe itself, says, and this is number five on the screen, Causation, a derived notion rather than a fundamental one, is best thought of as acting within theories that rely on the concept. Talking about causes is not the right vocabulary to use when thinking about how the universe works at a deep level. Carroll argues that the first premise in Craig's syllogism, remember that first premise was whatever begins to exist has a cause. Carroll argues that that first premise is false. And Carroll rejects the legitimacy of asking for a cause of the universe as such. And this is the longer text now also on your screen from Carroll. Why should we expect that there are causes or explanations or a reason why in the universe in which we live? 
It is because the physical world inside of which we are embedded has two important features. There are unbreakable patterns, laws of physics. Things do not just happen, they obey laws. And there is an arrow of time stretching from the past to the future. The entropy was lower in the past, it increases towards the future. Therefore, when you find some event or state of affairs B today, we can very often trace it back in time to one or a couple of possible predecessor events that we therefore call the causes of that, which leads to B according to the laws of physics. But crucially, both of these features of the universe that allow us to speak the language of causes and effects are completely absent when we talk about the universe as a whole. We do not think that our universe is part of a bigger ensemble that obeys laws. Even if it's our universe is part of the multiverse, the multiverse is not part of a bigger ensemble that obeys laws. Therefore, nothing gives us the right to demand some kind of external cause. Now, Carol here, I think, confuses one kind of causality, that between temporally separated, separated events. He confuses that with a much richer and broader notion of cause. He thinks that causality follows from the laws of nature. This is what he's been explaining, these unbreakable patterns, these laws of nature. Right? There are these laws of nature, and then we develop a notion of causality. But in fact, the relationship is just the opposite. It's not first laws of nature and then causality. It's the other way around. Indeed, the laws of nature reflect the causal relations that exist in the world. And thus, these laws depend upon the priority of causal relations. In rejecting the application of his restricted notion of cause to the question of the cause of the universe, Carroll mistakenly thinks that he shows the falsity of traditional arguments for a cause of existence as such that is, for an uncaused cause. Now, there are many issues here about the nature of causality that we need to leave aside. Some of them I addressed in the last lecture. But for now, I want to return to the question of creation and the beginning of the universe. In a way, the current debate is about whether or not cosmology discloses a beginning of the universe. Hawking, for example, denies the intelligibility of such a notion of the beginning. And others argue for variations of an eternal universe. William Lane Craig and Robert Spitzer claim that cosmology does indeed point to a beginning. The debate framed in such terms about a beginning, lead the exponents either to reject or to embrace the idea of creation. 
despite fundamental differences here as to what contemporary cosmology really tells us, all these views tend to identify what it means for the universe to be created with the universe's having a temporal beginning. This emphasis on beginnings leads to confusion about creation. The error here is to think that creation necessarily means that the universe has a temporal beginning. If creation and beginning are connected in this way, it becomes easy to see how a denial of there being a beginning leads to a denial of creation, and that an affirmation of a scientific account of the beginning leads to an affirmation of creation. Another reason for thinking that creation must involve a beginning concerns confusions about nothing in the expression creation out of nothing. The tendency is to think that coming to be out of nothing must refer to a beginning and that accordingly different accounts of nothing can now eliminate the need for a creator. Just as there are confusions about beginning, so too there are confusions about nothing. Number six, Alexander Vilenkin, who accepts a version of quantum tunneling from nothing as a description of the origin of the universe, we've already seen that, although remember, he doesn't think there needs to be a cause, but he does think there's a beginning. Huh? Although he accepts a description of the origin of the universe, he notes that the nothing in his account is a state with no classical space-time, the realm of unrestrained quantum gravity. It is a rather bizarre state in which all our basic notions of space, time, energy, entropy, etc., lose their meaning. Vilenkin offers the following thought experiment. Imagine space-time as the surface of a sphere, and then suppose that the sphere is shrinking like a balloon, losing its air. As the radius grows smaller, it eventually goes to zero. The surface of the sphere disappears, and with it, space-time itself. We have arrived at nothingness. We have also arrived at a precise definition of nothingness, a closed space-time of zero radius. This is the most complete and utter nothingness that scientific concepts can capture. It is mathematically devoid, not only of stuff, but also of location and duration. However, the nothing in some cosmological models that speak of the Big Bang in terms of quantum tunneling from nothing, as Vilenkin does, this nothing is not the nothing referred to in the traditional doctrine of creation out of nothing. The nothing in these cosmological reflections may very well be nothing like our present universe, but it is not the absolute nothing 
central to what it means to create. It is only that about which the theories say nothing. Another example of confusion about different senses of nothing can be seen in Lawrence Krauss's book, A Universe from Nothing, Why There is Something Rather Than Nothing. Krauss thinks that, and this is text seven on your screen, that the question of why there is something rather than nothing is really a scientific question, not a religious or philosophical question, because nothing and something are scientific concepts. And our discoveries over the past 30 years have completely changed what we mean by nothing. Hence, no appeal to a creator is needed, according to Krauss, since science is sufficient to explain something's coming from nothing. Offering a striking landscape of ever deeper senses of nothing, beyond even that of vacuums and empty space, Krauss concludes, and this is quotation eight on the screen, we have discovered that all signs suggest a universe that could and plausibly did arise from a deeper nothing involving the absence of space itself and which one day may return to nothing via processes that may not only be comprehensible but also processes that do not require any external control or direction. Now Lawrence Krauss is aware of philosophical and theological objections to any attempt to relate his sense or senses of nothing with the nothing central to the traditional doctrine of creation out of nothing. Nevertheless, he writes, and this is text nine, some philosophers and many theologians define and redefine nothing as not being any of the versions of nothing that scientists currently describe. But therein, in my opinion, lies the intellectual bankruptcy of much of theology and some of modern philosophy. For surely, this is one of the wonderful adverbs in this text, for surely nothing is every bit as physical as something, especially if it is to be defined as the absence of something. It then behooves us to understand precisely the physical nature of both these quantities, nothing and something. And without science, any definition is just words. Despite a widespread interest in nothing or various levels of nothingness, the nothing to which many authors, especially Lawrence Krauss refers, is really something even at times a quasi-ambiguous reality. But the nothing in the traditional understanding of creation out of nothing only refers to the absence of everything other than God. In a way, however, to speak of other than God risks the danger of locating God and things on the same metaphysical plane, perhaps differing only in degree. Nor ought we to think that this means that there are two entities, two ultimate principles, God and nothing. God, creation out of nothing, 
does not mean that God changes nothing into something. Rather, it's a way of affirming that it is God alone and nothing else who is the cause of absolutely everything that is. One influential cosmologist, Lee Smolin, in his book, Three Roads to Quantum Gravity, calls into question the meaningfulness of asking questions about an ultimate origin of the universe. His claim is, and this is uh, text 10 on the screen, Smolin's claim is that the universe cannot have been made by anything that exists outside of it. For by definition, the universe is all there is, and there can be nothing outside of it. Accordingly, the first principle of cosmology must be there is nothing outside the universe. The first principle means that we take the universe to be, by definition, a closed system. It means that the explanation for anything in the universe can involve only other things that also exist in the universe. We need to recognize, however, that there are different senses of first principles. Some are first with respect to a restricted area of investigation, for example, the natural sciences. Others would be first in a kind of absolute sense, referring to all categories of explanation. So one might not confuse first principles of cosmology with broader metaphysical first principles. Confusions concerning creation and cosmology run the gamut, from denials of creation, because the universe is conceived as having no beginning, to explanations of a beginning in exclusively scientific terms, which avoid any appeal to a creator, to opposing claims that the Big Bang itself offers a kind of scientific warrant for belief in, God, in God's creation of the universe. But if creation ought not to be identified necessarily with the beginning of the universe, what does it mean? And here now we will be I will be applying some of the arguments in the first three lectures about the nature of creation so we can avoid the, the error of beginnings, the error of tying the doctrine of creation necessarily with the beginning of the universe. Contrary to all these claims that use cosmology either to deny or to affirm creation, we need to recognize that creation is a metaphysical and theological affirmation that all that is, in whatever way or ways it is, depends upon God as cause. The natural sciences, including cosmology, have as their subject the world of changing things, from subatomic particles to acorns to galaxies. Whenever there is a change, there must be something that changes. Whether these changes are biological or cosmological, without beginning or end, or whether these changes are temporally finite, they all remain processes. Creation, on the other hand, is the radical causing of the whole existence of whatever exists. Creation is not a change. 
to cause completely something to exist is not to produce a change in something. It's not to work on or with some existing material. At the very least, this is the traditional understanding of creation. I'm leaving aside here different accounts of what creation means in the context of contemporary process in philosophy and theology, since these accounts deny creation out of nothing and reject conceptions of God as immutable and omnipotent. So as I, to reiterate, cosmology and all the other natural sciences offer accounts of change. They do not address, this is number 11, by the way, they do not address the metaphysical and theological questions of creation. They do not speak to why there is something rather than nothing. It is a mistake to use arguments in the natural sciences to deny creation. It is also a mistake to appeal to cosmology as a confirmation of creation. Discussions of creation are different from arguments from order and design in, in the universe to a source of order and design. Similarly, discussions about the fine tuning of the initial conditions of the universe do not directly concern the topic of creation. Thus, whether or not multiverse theories do away with the need to explain such fine-tuning, as, for example, Hawking claims, they do not provide, such discussions about multiverse theories, do not provide a commentary on creation. Creation, as we have seen, offers an explanation of why things exist at all. It may very well be that natural philosophy, working with the discoveries of the empirical sciences, can lead us to knowledge of the existence of God. But this would not be a knowledge of God as creator. For this type of knowledge of God as creator, we need metaphysics and ultimately revelation. One of the key texts from Thomas Aquinas that I've cited before is the following, and this is number 12 on, your hand, on the screen. Over and above the mode of becoming by which something comes to be through change or motion, there must be a mode of becoming or origin of things without any mutation or motion through the influx of being. For Thomas, creation means a dependence in being, which is a notion in metaphysics, not in the natural sciences. To be caused to be by God means to be dependent upon God for the fact that one is. The relationship here between divine cause and created effect is one of metaphysical dependence. Indeed, the fundamental sense of causality involves dependence and not necessarily any temporal relationship of prior and posterior. We tend to think of cause and effect only in temporal terms. If we think that way, we are going to miss a more fundamental understanding of a metaphysical dependence between cause and effect. Notice that Thomas distinguishes between the mode of becoming by which something comes to be through change or motion, 
from the more fundamental sense of creation that he identifies as the influx of being. The latter, the influx of being, is the causing of existence as such. And as we've talked about in previous lectures, the as such is an important phrase. It helps us to recognize the difference between causing something to come to be or to exist in the ways in which, for example, animals produce offspring, they cause them to exist, a difference between that notion of causing and the causing of the actuality of whatever is, as it is. And that kind of causing of the actuality of whatever is, as it is, is what it means for God to create. Now, number 13, we're going to move more directly to beginning again. Creation is not primarily some distant event. Rather, it is the ongoing, complete causing of the existence of all that is. At this very moment, were God not causing all that is to exist, there would be nothing at all. Creation concerns, first of all, the origin of the universe, not its temporal beginning. Indeed, it's important to recognize this distinction between origin and beginning. The former, origin, affirms the complete continuing dependence of all that is on God as cause. Whatever is created has its origin in God. But we ought not to think that to be created must mean that whatever is created has a temporal beginning. It may very well be that the universe had a temporal beginning, as the traditional interpretation of the opening of Genesis acknowledges. But there is no contradiction in the notion of an eternal created universe. For were the universe to be without a beginning, it still would have an origin. It still would be created. This was precisely the position of Thomas Aquinas, who accepted as a matter of faith that the universe had a temporal beginning, but also defended the intelligibility of a universe created and eternal. Unlike his teacher, Albert the Great, or his colleague at the University of Paris, Bonaventure, Thomas did not think that out of nothing, in the phrase creation out of nothing, he did not think that out of nothing had to mean after nothing, such that a created eternal universe was impossible. Both Albert and Bonaventure would think that a created eternal universe was a contradiction. As we have already seen in Stephen Hawking's denial of God's causing the universe to be because there is no time, hence no temporal priority, hence no causality to be exercised, cause and effect are often seen as necessarily involving a temporal sequence. But Thomas can speak of an eternal universe as being caused by God because he does not limit the relationship between cause and effect to a temporal sequence. And, of course, he distinguishes God's causality and from that which creatures exercise. 
God's causality as creator is prior to the created effect, but the priority is not a temporal priority. It is the failure to recognize that to be created does not necessarily entail a temporal beginning that causes considerable confusion in contemporary debates about the implications of cosmology for arguments about whether or not the universe is created. This error about beginnings continues to be the beginning of all sorts of errors about what cosmology can properly describe and what creation is. Thomas Aquinas thought that neither science nor philosophy could know whether the universe had a beginning. He did think that metaphysics could show us that the universe is created, but he would have warned against those today who use Big Bang cosmology, for example, to conclude that the universe has a beginning and therefore must be created. He was always alert to reject the use of bad arguments in support of what is believed. Quotation uh, number 14 on the screen from Thomas. That the world had a beginning is an object of faith, but not a demonstration or science. And we do well to keep this in mind. Otherwise, if we presumptuously undertake to demonstrate what is of faith, we may introduce arguments that are not strictly conclusive, and this would furnish infidels with an occasion for scoffing, as they would think that we assent to truths of faith on such grounds. The singularity in traditional Big Bang cosmology may represent the beginning of the universe we observe, but we cannot conclude that it is the absolute beginning, the kind of beginning which would indicate creation. And as some contemporary cosmologists recognize, there could very well be something before the Big Bang. When it came to how to read the opening of Genesis, Thomas observed that what is essential in that text is the fact of creation, not the manner or mode of the formation of the world. Questions concerning order, design, and chance in nature refer to the manner or mode of formation of the world. Attempts in the natural sciences to explain these facets of nature, order, design, chance, purpose, uh, attempts in the natural sciences to explain these facets of nature do not challenge the fact of creation. We saw that with respect to biology and uh, evolutionary biology and natural selection. Those explanations in uh, evolutionary biology do not challenge the fact of creation. A world with a temporal beginning concerns the kind of world God has created. It may very well be easier to accept that a world which has an absolute temporal beginning is a created world. And such a world may be especially appropriate for understanding sacred history, important as it is for believers. But an eternal world, one without a beginning in time, would be no less a created world. 
Number 15 on the screen. Cosmological theories are easily used or rather misused to support or to deny creation. Each time, however, as I've suggested, to create has been joined inextricably to temporal finitude such that to be created necessarily means to begin to be. Thus, to deny a beginning is to deny creation. It was the genius of Thomas Aquinas to distinguish between creation understood philosophically with no reference to temporality and creation understood theologically, which included the recognition that the universe does have an absolute temporal beginning. There is a wider confusion at work here as well, wider than the confusing of creation with beginnings. It is the failure to distinguish between creation and change, and hence the failure to recognize that the natural sciences, including cosmology, have nothing to tell us about the ultimate cause of the existence of things. God's creative power is exercised throughout the entire cause of course of cosmic history in whatever ways that history has unfolded. No explanation of cosmological or biological change, no matter how radically random or contingent such an explanation claims to be, challenges the metaphysical account of creation that is of the dependence of the existence of all things upon God as cause. When some thinkers deny creation on the basis of theories in the natural sciences or use cosmology to confirm creation or reject the conclusions of science in defense of creation, they misunderstand creation or the natural sciences or both. Experiments being performed at the Large Hadron Collider, that huge underground particle accelerator on the Swiss-French border. These experiments may bring us closer to what happened just after the Big Bang, but they will tell us nothing about creation. The distance between minute fractions of a second after the Big Bang and creation, that distance is in, in a sense infinite. We do not get closer to creation by getting closer to the Big Bang. Furthermore, as we've seen, some contemporary cosmologists argue that there could very well be something before the Big Bang. Similarly, excitement about the recent discovery of gravitational waves referred to as, quote, ripples in the fabric of space-time has encouraged some to speculate that we may soon be able, quote, to see what happened at the moment the universe began. But for whatever beginning these gravitational waves might provide evidence, it is not the kind of absolute beginning central to the doctrine of creation. A beginning or origin that, as we have seen, is first of all separate from any notion of time. And what I hope that you've seen in these lectures that I've been giving, these four lectures that I've been giving, given, giving uh, reiterated here tonight is that we need to avoid the error of thinking that discussions in the natural sciences about beginnings or about causes in nature have anything to tell us about the creation 
of the universe. Thank you very much.